This empty chair represents the addict who died today, not knowing recovery was possible. Welcome to this episode of The Empty Cheer. Um, what a gift and honor. I have two amazing um, guest speakers here tonight, and it's just going to be a great show. So thank you all for tuning in. Um, and I just want to take a minute to thank some of our sponsors, um, Bob and Andrea Surrett of Alternative Healthcare, um, Andover Cares, Artie Broadhurst, the law firm, Circle of Hope, Enterprise Bank, Essex Floor, and Haven of Hope. And I do have more um, sponsors that I'll thank as the uh, show goes on. But just thank you all for allowing us to have this opportunity um, for people to come and share their experience, strength, and hope. And again, tonight we have two remarkable stories um, from being going to hell and, and rising above. And it's just a, an honor and privilege. And one's in California and one's in New Hampshire. So it's pretty fun doing it this way. It's a little awkward for me. Um, I feel like I just said to Louis, <laughs> feel professional having this headset on, and we all know I'm not. So it'll be a fun show. And um, so thank you both for taking time out of your day, um, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with not only me, with, with all our listeners. Um, they do have the opportunity to call in and ask you two questions as we go throughout the um, show. And we also have um, the news feed, so people will be asking questions. So, um, Amanda, I met you through a good friend, and it's just an honor and a blessing to have you here. And what is your temperature right now in California? Yep. Just uh, just another day, like 80 degrees out. Just another you day, know, 80 no degrees. No big deal, people at the beach. Amen, amen. Well, welcome from sunny California, and thank you for being here. So, love to hear your story. I did put out some of the clips from the Dr. Phil show, um, and I just can't believe, because I spoke with your sister on Zoom as well, and, um, and I can't believe who you two are today. Like, what an absolute crap show to amazing, beautiful women. And, uh, and I'm sure your story is um, going to hit many this evening. So do you want to share a little bit about your experience, strength, and hope? And um, as I might have some questions and interject, or we'll just let it go um, authentically. So take it Thank away. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. Um, speaking of, like, the show, it's just, like, I cringe because I only watched it twice. Yeah. And I mean, the first time was very like crazy. Then I watched it a second time, but it's just, it's just because I'm, just, that's just not who I am today. Yeah. Um, but a little bit about me. I have a sobriety date of September 10th, 2014. Um, I have two sisters, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you mentioned, and um, I grew up in New Jersey. My parents, they're still married. They've been, married for like almost 32 years now and like I had a good childhood like and I tell you that because nothing I had like a good life nothing that happened to me made me an alcoholic um but yeah good childhood um my dad coached all of our sports teams and my mom you know she worked too she had dinner on the table every night and life was pretty good but what happened was I got so when I got to high school, I was popular, had good grades, a lot of friends, and um, both of my sisters, my older sister, Valine, yep. who you know, she, yep. um, she started getting loaded early in high school. Mm -hmm. My little sister, I remember her being 12 years old, smoking a cigarette, and I was like, ew. <laughs> you know, like, I just was so far, like, I kind of, you know, just resentful, and I didn't want to be like them, but... I got out of, I partied in high school, but nothing like serious, like, and so I graduated and I met him, hmm. the love of my life. <laughs> and um, I started partying a lot more and I went to community college. I just got a new car. I had a great job. I worked in a pharmacy and a drug a dealer's favorite place to work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, <So>, yeah. <laughs> then I got introduced to, to drugs. I identify as an alcoholic, but drugs are a huge part of my story as well. And mm. like, it's, it's convenient because I worked in a pharmacy. Yeah. And that was my get down. I stole um, pills 
from the pharmacy for a couple years and um, until one day I walked into work and I saw the manager at the time clock and I was like, ah, you know, like, mm. but the thing was when that happened and where I was at in life, I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Or like, I need help. The first thought was like, damn, like I'm pissed. How am I going to get loaded today? Yeah. You know, just that like sick thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, then I got fired. And by that time, my older sister was in Florida. She just went to a treatment. At that point, my older sister, my little sister have been, they're way worse than I was. And I was like, oh, I'll never be like them. Mm-hmm. But at the time, my older sister was in Florida. So I decided after um, I went to treatment for, because of that, that um, right after I got fired, just because like I needed it to look good for like court and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like not because like I wanted to. And when I went to treatment, I compared myself to everybody, you yeah. know, like, and I don't like the stereotype for being, you know, one of us, like what I thought was homeless, you know what I mean? Like I didn't have any of my teeth and I'm just sleeping under a bridge and just like, you know, that was literally my thinking. Yeah. And when I went to treatment, I heard like these people talking about all these things and I just like, didn't do them, you know? So I was like, I just need a quick detox, you know? Um, And then I got out of treatment. I lasted 14 days. And then I called my mom and dad and was like, I'm good. And (laughs) they came and picked me up, got out of treatment and I was loaded that night. Yeah. And then, like I said, my older sister was in Florida and I realized something. I said, New Jersey is the problem. Oh my gosh, that's what it is. You know, I need to get out of Jersey. So I went to Florida with my sister. And like I said, we didn't really have like that good of a relationship. So what happened was when I went there, how we bonded was we got loaded together. Um, My dad, like he helped us like get like furniture, like a bed and couch TV and stuff for that apartment out there. I would say within two months, we sold everything in that apartment and we were sleeping on a air mattress that had a hole in it. So we kept having to blow it up all the time and it was just chaos. But then I realized one more thing when I was there, I said, Oh, it's my sister. She's crazy. She's the problem. I need to go back to Jersey. You know, just that constant thinking of like playing the victim and it's like, you know, it's just never my fault. Yeah. So a few things. So when you were fired from the pharmacy at any, you can drink your water all through the show. Um, did they offer you treatment? Did they try and address you? Did they try and say like, do you have an issue? Do you want help? Or was it just like, we know what you're doing and you're fired. And like, how did that not go anywhere? Or were you just at a point where, yeah, I got to go? Well, I mean, a lot of us are very smart and mm-hmm. I did it in such a way that they literally, they couldn't like prove it. Okay. And then <laughs> when I wrote, when they fired me, they made me like write a little confession thing. Yeah. But at the beginning of it, I said, I am under the influence and like blah, 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 blah like right now. Yep. Dude, I don't even know. I take that <laughs> as like a sign from God that I walked out of there not in handcuffs. Amen. Amen. I know. And then when you went from the New Jersey to the Florida, like they always talk about geographical cures, you know, geographical cures. But wherever you go, you take yourself with you, you know, mm-hmm. so the Jersey to Florida and now you're heading back to Jersey. Yeah, going back to Jersey. Nice. So then when I went back to Jersey, my little sister, she happened to be home because she like went away to text, moved to Texas, too. But she came back to Jersey. And so now... I get home from Florida from getting loaded with my older sister and I start getting loaded with my little sister. And then, you know, it just started like the chaos all over again. And by that point, um, my older sister came back to Jersey too. And then we all started getting loaded together and it's like sick, you know, but it was just like, it just, that's how we bonded, you know? And um, it was a lot of, 
chaos with like, you know, my parents like caused them a lot of fighting and for the longest time, I don't know about you, but like, I would always think like, this is my problem. It's not affecting you. Like you guys need to mind your own business. You yeah. know what I mean? Like never really realizing that it's not the only, you know what I mean? It just doesn't affect me. It affects everyone around me. Cause all like the chaos and but yeah, so we're back. I'm back in Jersey getting loaded with my sisters. And it's just crazy how it, the disease just like it progressed so quick, you know? And like it, any, I couldn't even do like, like anything, like life events because my whole world revolved around getting loaded. And um, if it interfered with me getting loaded, like I didn't want to do it. Um, but like, like I said, it was a lot of in and out of like detox and treatment, me and my sisters within the years. But how it worked, it was like one of us would go away to a quick detox, seven, 14 days. Then the other two were still getting loaded. You know, it yeah. was just like that cycle. We just kept doing it over and over again. And what and are then, your parents doing at this time? Are they trying oh to God. interject? Are they trying to get you girls hope? I mean, help. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, my mom, I mean, like my poor mom, like we would just, it's sick to think about, but we would like, I mean, we just caused so much pain to them. And like, um, I don't know. I look back at it now thinking like, yeah, of course, like they enabled us, but like my dad, they didn't want to kick their girls out on the street. You know what I mean? And just like, it was just hard for them. Yeah. Parents and, don't know. They don't know what to do. You know, they're yeah, afraid of exactly. you girls dying. So they do the best with what they knew how. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Hmm. So then one night, um, I this part of my story is how my God works in my life hmm. is that I wrote a letter to Dr. Phil. This was like two years prior when I was like loaded. I wrote a letter and then... Um, it was in, at the end of August of 2014 and just got arrested one more time. My little sister just got out of jail. And literally that night, I had a voicemail from the producers of Dr. Phil. Whoa. And they, they wanted to do a show on addiction the following week. And we were like, yeah, let's run it. Let's do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Because we're like, oh, we're, we're going to get treatment, you know, like yeah. we knew that going into that. So they sent somebody to follow us, like a normal, like routine of getting loaded. And it's a full time job in my case, you yeah. know. Yes. So they sent someone to follow us. And then um, and we flew out to Hollywood on September 8th of 2014 and then we walked on set filmed the show on september 9th of 2014 wow and when we walked on that stage like i just remember like my mom and my dad sitting there and like behind them they have the big screens mm -hmm. and they're showing us like getting loaded and they're showing us like they're showing the things that we had to do to get loaded and you know and it's just almost like oh my gosh no parents should have to see that you know because it's not usually people aren't broadcasting like how they're getting loaded right you know so it was wild it was insane and like i got yelled at by dr phil <laughs> whoa that was you know and yeah. it was just like what the heck is happening? Yeah. But I mean, we walked off set that day and I got sent to treatment. And Amen. Amen. The yes, original letter yeah. though, what made you write the letter and what the heck did you write in the letter? <laughs> Me and my sisters are party animals. We need to be on your show. Or, <laughs> or my parents won't get off my back and I'm an addict. Yeah. Well, I honestly don't even remember what I wrote, but I think I like sent like a picture of them from like before of us three, because if you see like me and my sisters, it's, we don't look like your everyday junkie, you yeah, know? Yeah. And we're all sisters getting loaded together. Like what better story is that? You know? Like, yeah. so I wrote that letter. Just, I, I remember saying just like, you know, we get, we're getting loaded together. It's chaos. And we're doing this, 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 and this, you know? And like, I wrote the letter because my dad was obsessed with Dr. Phil. 
he would always have them on the TV. <laughs> he would always, he would cut out like articles and leave them on the table for us and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, so that's why I wrote the letter to him. Okay. And he used to, yeah, he used to really like him. But when we were on the show, he told my dad to grow a set of balls. So wow. <laughs> so then that ended real quick. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, like I said, the show was crazy, but I now did put, yeah, I put some clips up of the show um, so that people could see throughout the week. And um, you girls were yeah. train wrecks. I know. Like, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. We were just so sick, just like our everyday, like, routine. And um, you yeah, don't even, I, you don't even look anything like you looked. And neither I did know. your sister. I was like, I know. wow. It's funny, my husband now, because yeah. he watched it, and he calls, he used to call me Ugly Betty. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That was fun. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, so then when we got sent to treatment out here, um, I was just, I was over it. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't, I was terrified, but I just didn't want to feel how I was feeling. How old and were you when you went? I came in. This time, as a 25-year-old child. Wow. That's... And did mm -hmm. the three of you go together to the same location? No. My little my little sister came out here to California um, to a different treatment center. I got sent out here to California in a, at a women's treatment center. And then Valley, my older sister got sent to um, South Padre Island in Texas. Nice. So... And that was like their thing that they said we all had to be like, you know, not together because yeah. we were like toxic together. You were enmeshed yeah. with each other, you know, and uh, and I and I totally identify with enmeshment with family and, and drinking and partying. So, yeah, you girls were definitely enmeshed. And for it yeah. to work, you all had to be separated into put in three timeouts in three different corners. Timeout. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, what that looked like for me is that I got introduced to, you know, a 12 step program and I just like did the work and it's like, I just kept hearing, you know, get a sponsor and work the steps and, um, get commitments and do all these things. But like I said, the first time when I went to treatment back in Jersey, when I was 22, like, I just, I couldn't, I wasn't really ready to like fully accept that I had a problem. Yeah. And like I, I shared, like it was just a secret for so long for me because um, I had this, the guilt and shame. Like I just thought that, you know, being 25 years old, I was supposed to be like, you know, getting married, having a career and a kid and like, just all these things and it just like wasn't there for me you know so the guilt and the shame just like kicked in like super hard and and like I said I just was willing to go to like any lengths and I just started doing the work out here yeah. and then like it's just crazy how like my higher power works and like how I got a job like you know what I mean and just how like these people were like put in my life and just like um you know, like I met my, I've been with, I just got married. Actually, I saw that. Congratulations. Like a month ago. Congratulations. Yeah. So like, I just like, you know, and then I started meeting all these people and I don't know, I just knew that until I like fully accepted, like that I was an alcoholic, I wasn't going to stay sober. Yeah. And what I realized is I needed to stop trying to change everything around me yeah. and change like what's in me and that's like what I needed to do Amen. and it was almost like the hardest thing to do because sometimes clean. like I have to get in some serious pain to ask for help sometimes you know and it's just like and I know I know all these things that I need to do and um but yeah that's why I just continue to do all this stuff because Amen. I don't know what part of the puzzle like you know is making everything work but I mean, I have six years sober. Amen. I, I have four sponsees right now. Amen. I go to all these meetings and, you know, and I'm constantly like I show up for people. I'm a good friend. I'm a good, you know, wife. I have a kid. 
I'm in charge of a little, he's almost two, a little person. Do you know? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. And I have a relationship with my parents and and my sisters, you know? And my sisters don't do what I do. Like, they don't, you know what I mean? But they're doing well. Amen. And we have a great relationship, but they don't do what I do. And my parents, like, I have the best relationship with them, but... Sometimes I feel like if I had a drink tomorrow, like with them at dinner, they might think it's okay because I don't think that they fully understand. Like, you know what I mean? But that's just me. And it's like, you know, because we get with family, like talking about it, we get better, you know, but sometimes like they don't, you know, but it like right now, like they're just like amazing. They support me. Um, Amen. Life is a trip. It's just crazy from what it was six years ago, even three years ago, even a year ago. Yeah. It's like I'm constantly growing That's and awesome. healing, you know, and it's like just a never like ending like journey, Amen. you know, and I mean, it's just I'm so, 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 so grateful. So for, when like, you went into that life. treatment, how long were you in there for? Um, I was in there for four months inpatient and then I went for like 10 months in a sober living. Wow. So do you think that's part of the key of success? Like right now it's, we have like a 60% success rate when men and women go from treatment into sober living. Do you think that was key for you to stay on this path? I do. I mean, I feel like it's what I needed. And I always say that, like, I needed to be locked down. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I did need that because I remember even at almost like four months, I was still plotting a, a way like, okay, maybe I can go home, get loaded on this day, but I won't get loaded this day, this day. So I'll, yeah. I'll like piss clean, you know, at this time. And yeah. like, you know, like it's still like your head's still turning and the mental madness. I don't know like when it happened, but like I remember one day waking up and like went to work and then went to a meeting and then got home and I was like, oh my God, I didn't think about getting loaded today. You know, and yeah. that's just huge. Cause like I said, it's just, it was always on my mind. It's the only thing that I cared about. Right. And when that mental madness stops or when did I stop thinking about a drink and, and when that gets lifted, I so remember that. I was like, I have no idea when the obsession for alcohol stopped for me. But one day it just did. And I was just like, this is absolutely unbelievable. Um, and that's a miracle for yeah, us. Absolutely. And in regards to your parents, they probably thought you girls just went through a phase. Like this is a phase and now you girls grew out of it because you say like if they would think it would be okay to have a drink you know and good yeah. lord to give you a drink um would be just to be put you in a cemetery because yes. one's never enough for any of us you know do we have a no. call we do guess who we have um phil Leahy. no beth Blaz- better beth blazonas no better fran Leahy. fran Leahy. oh there's a wonderful woman who's going to jump on the line come on in fran hi how are you dollface I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's nice to hear your voice. Yeah, same here. I wanted to say, you know, I'm enjoying the show, and I I wanted you to know that I was watching. And Amanda's story is really kind of a a different story than what I've ever heard before. The um, Dr. Phil, you know, part is just was unbelievable. Yeah. But I'm so glad that they all got help, you know, after that. Me too. uh, and she's doing great. Amanda, I just want to let you know you're doing great, and um, I'm really proud of you and your family. Uh-huh. Thank you Keep so much. That means a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Cole, you're doing great as usual. I always want you to know that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And we still have many prayers going out for you for uh, a healing on your body and, and know that you're loved by me, and I'm sure that everyone else that's listening as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I've been very lucky. So You are um, lucky, girl. You're blessed. Yeah, yeah, I am blessed. you got a bunch I, of angels watching over you, that's I for sure. I have a lot, a lot of, yeah, supporters, so I'm, I'm really very, I'm overwhelmed, actually, but, but in a good way. So. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you for your so support. keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks for calling Thank in. Thank you. 
Bye-bye, friend. Her and her husband, actually her husband, um, he started this show 10 years, 12 years ago with his daughter, um, who he thought he was going to bury, and she's actually 12 years um, clean off of heroin right now. Oh and my over, God. yeah, she's a miracle. I just got chills. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. an absolute miracle. And, um, and the work that Fran and Phil have done yeah. in that 10 years plus has been unbelievable. Absolutely, because they had nowhere to go when their daughter was going through all of this. So they created an amazing group called the Circle of Hope. It, meets, it used to meet at the police department on Monday evenings, 6.30 to 8. And now we're on Zoom during COVID times. Um, but just the work that they have done um, has been amazing. And from that, he also started um, Senator DeZoglio from Massachusetts. Um, she wanted something up for um, prevention and education, and he created with her MVP ASAP, um, and he ran that for many, many years, and I took over the presidency um, coming on my second year of doing it. So he's just been my mentor, and uh, he's just, they've both guided me along this whole journey, doing the show now without them. They were the, co the uh, hosts for many years, and now um, they handed it off to me, and they're just special people. Um, she's battling cancer right now, and it's publicly known. Um, so I just constantly ask if um, people believe in prayers, please pray for my sister, Fran Leahy, who's an absolute doll. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, welcome. So if anyone else wants to call in, the number is 978-659-0072. Um, I do want to go back a little, too, in regards to why you're in treatment. Did you have any conversations with your sisters at any point? When you were when in, I was treatment. in treatment? Yeah, or did they keep you guys totally separate? And for how long? When was the first time you guys were able to talk? Um, so my little sister went to, they sent her to treatment out here too. And in treatment, they took us to like outside meetings. And I remember I ran into my sister no at a way. meeting. No my way. little sister. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then. My treatment center found out, and then for the next the next three months in treatment, I wasn't allowed to go to that meeting. Like they took me to another meeting because they wanted to keep us. You know what I mean? But I was able to talk to my sisters after like I want to say like sixty days because in, in treatment, yeah. if you do like step one, two, three, four, you can get your phone back. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how that went down. Okay. All right. And then what was like your first meeting? Like, I'm sure seeing your sister at a meeting, did you start crying when you saw her? Did you hug her? Like, yeah, that's... I hugged her. I was just like so happy to see her and, you know, us like doing like well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. But then after that, like I continued to um, talk to them all the time. But my little sister she doesn't live here. She she lasted out here in, for for six months, but California just like wasn't for her, and she went back to Jersey. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. So tell if there's a newcomer listening tonight and they're struggling, what would be your words of advice to them? Just do the work. I mean, sometimes I just want to like shake people, you know, it's just because I just want everybody to feel the freedom that I feel right. because it's possible. That's, that's, you know what I mean? And just to reach out, ask for help. And I would also, I'm like loving, but I'm also very like, like I want to tell them like, <laughs> it's not cute. Yeah. to be sleeping in a twin size bed and yeah. have a curfew at 9 p.m. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. I get to sleep in a king size bed. I can go wherever I want. Yeah. I have car insurance. Yeah. There's that. <laughs> nice. Like, you know, I have a car. Yes. And um, yeah, it's just, just do the work because I'm telling you, like, it is possible. Yep. Well, you're an absolute miracle, and I thank you for thank coming you. here, sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. I'm hoping uh, many listeners are hearing um, your story, and also they can see the clips of uh, Dr. Phil, because, again, looking at you, you don't look like any resemblance to the women that were, or I should call you kids, because that's what you guys are acting kids. like. Yes. And one more question before I go to a commercial break. I um, just want to put in here comments that just lots of love. 
uh, for Amanda from Hannah and Beth and Tina, Tara, Deanna, Renee, uh, just lots of Linda, lots of people just giving their love and you know admiration for your story. Amen. Amen. Did you girls go back to Dr. Phil to show him what you look like at the end? Like after yes. you completed? Was that an yes, amazing experience? Yes, I've actually been back on the show like three, four different times because Amen. we had sisters, twin sisters that wrote in because of our show. I got to go on and talk to them. Wow. And then I just went on like a couple other times for just to show that I was still sober. And um, is your father still a fan of him? <laughs> No, mm -mm. I don't think he watches. None of us watch that show, mm -mm. you know, but I mean, do you, we're here and we always talk about like it was a very dark time, Yeah. but it literally the life that we have now, like it's just, it was worth it. Amen. Amen. Well, before we go to our commercial break, I just want to thank some more of our sponsors, which is LMCC, Matt McLennan and McLennan Century 21. Sid Harris of Methuen Events, um, more out of Boston, Recovery Centers of America, Sunrise Detox, and we have a new um, vendor that joined us this year. It's Top Sale Addiction mm. Treatment. They just officially opened today in Andover, Mass., and I will be having them on in a few weeks to talk about it. So we'll be right back, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, thank you so much, Amanda. God bless. Clean Slate saves lives. With medication-assisted treatment for opioid and alcohol addictions, they provide an individualized treatment plan for each patient with a variety of evidence-based psychological and social treatments, including groups and counseling. Their physicians and care coordinators work closely with other medical and behavioral health professionals, social service organizations, and community partners to support every aspect of their patient's recovery and to address any barriers they may face. Hey there, this is Phil Leahy, and just to break it down, if you or someone you love has a problem with addiction, give Clean Slate a chance. They have the tools that may just help you into a long-lasting recovery. And guys, we'll see you again on the empty chair. Bye-bye. Hi there, my name's Phil Leahy, and I do the empty chair show here. And as much as Fran and I have enjoyed doing this show, our real passion is with where it all began, the Circle of Hope, my support group for the families of addicts. I learned a long time ago that dealing with an active addict is just too difficult. So we invite you to join our group, the Circle of Hope. Uh, give me a call, 978-886-2949, and you'll see our banner on the show anyway. And, and give me a call, find out what it's all about. You know, if you don't think you're ready to sit into a group, uh, Fran and I always invite people uh, over to the house and we sit down, have a one-on-one, -on -one, and we talk about a plan you have to set up, how to deal with someone in active addiction, or, or just give you a chance to vent. So, I mean, if you or someone you know has dealing with a, someone in active addiction, Reach out, give a call, take the first step. I promise you that it won't make it easier, but once you understand what it's all about, you'll be able to deal with it a little bit better. So again, 978-886-2949. Just ask for Phil. I'm always available 24-7. Thanks, and we'll see you on the empty chair. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the second part of this empty chair. We went from the West Coast and now we're jumping to the East Coast in good old New Hampshire. We have an amazing young man here this evening to tell us our sto his story, um, who he actually went down pretty um, dark places with uh, going into um, Satanism, um, crime and prostitution. And then all of a sudden, he uh, after 23 treatments, um, it hits him, and he gets it. So it's an honor for me to introduce Andrew tonight to share his experience, strength, and hope as well. Hello. How are you? I'm doing excellent. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. So nice to see you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, Amanda, for, for sharing your strength and your hope there. It was lovely hearing. I went to treatment with Amanda's sister, actually. <laughs> 
nice. um, in South Padre. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was wonderful, wonderful person. Um, my story is relatively same, actually, to a lot of other people's that come into um, sobriety. Uh, I feel that what I did on the streets wasn't wasn't out of out of the ordinary for for a lot of people like me um i actually have been for years telling people i started drinking at 11 um, mm -hmm. but i recently talking to my wife found out that it was i was actually 10 when that happened when i started wow. when i got drunk for the first time uh i was 10 years old wow and one aluminum can of liquid made every insecurity fear um just vanish and i proceeded to ask myself what i thought was the most important question i could have ever asked myself which is one how do i get more of this and two how do i never run out amen um i mean through the progressively i started doing heroin when i was probably around 15. wow um i went to my first youth detention center when i was 15 up in northern new hampshire it was called midway i don't even know if it's still there um, I got arrested when I was four, 14. I got arrested when I was 14, um, I think. It's a little hazy back then, mm. but uh, as it is for probably most of us. But um, I got arrested when I was like 15, 14. I went to this youth detention center. I got arrested for robbing a house um, for, of all things, weed money, right? <laughs> um, but... Uh, so I got popped. I went up there and that's when my first introduction to 12 step fellowships took place. Um, they had these things called hospitals and institution meetings. You're probably all aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple old timers came in to my youth detention center. Honestly, they could have been like 30, but I was 15. So they were just real old people to me. <laughs> and, uh, but right off the bat, they started talking about what it meant to be an alcoholic. They suggested things like um, how much they drank, how much they lost. I was 15. Like, that's, this was the first truly significant negative thing that had happened to me. And uh, even then, I thought it was someone who ratted me out's fault, not not my own fault for doing this this yeah. heinous crime of... of uh, breaking and entering and and robbery home invasion um and uh so i immediately alienated myself from the concept of i was anything like the people that were telling me they were alcoholics mm. um i'm a musician that's a large part of my story <laughs> is um is playing music and in, in the quote unquote rock and roll lifestyle that i thought was just the bee's knees oh yeah um i wanted to be dead by 27 and i'm actually 27 right now so that didn't <laughs> that didn't happen Good. but i'll be 27 for a few more months yes my goal and, uh, was 18 and then when i made it to 18 i says all right 20 and i <laughs> i made it past it i get it yeah um so the I was just playing in bands. I was, I was using anything that I possibly could and, um, robbing people, um, selling stolen guns, you name it. I was trying to do it to get high and, uh, going to Lawrence to sell guns, Fitchburg, sell guns. If you're nice, thanks. The viewers <laughs> probably know these areas. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, when I was 18, I was actually, I was living in the dorm room of a friend of mine who was going to school at the school that I'm currently enrolled in. So that's full circle right there. Wow. But uh, my parents who were absolutely loving, always incredible. I have no negative things to say about them. To this day, they're still amazing, beautiful, beautiful people, creative, smart. Um, they had an intervention. They held an intervention for me. And that began the trips to rehabs for me. Um, went out to California, treatment, um, you name it. If there's a state, I went to treatment in Jersey. Um, I went to treatment all over the country. 
never once really, really trying to get sober until I did turn 18 and I became homeless. And, uh, that, that is a majority of my, my story is me being homeless. Um, just like countless other people. And, uh, I wasn't like couch surfing homeless. I was living inside of a dumpster homeless. Um, multiple trips to jails psych wards i turned 21 actually in a psych ward in las vegas um <laughs> so i was doing it right yeah but uh um the story gets interesting in my personal opinion when uh i went to treatment for the for the last time i went to a treatment center in south padre island um, I was 127 pounds. I had been up for countless days, um, uh, doing amphetamines, methamphetamines, mm. um, black tar heroin and crack cocaine were my, my three go-tos, obviously alcohol as well. But, um, they let me into treatment. I was there for two weeks. I didn't want to, I, I went to treatment again. I was living in the, um, drain tunnels underneath the city of las vegas um sh shameless plug right here there's a book coming out you can pre-order it now it's called surviving nights surviving the las vegas drain tunnels Amen. written by matthew o'brien i'm in that book nice um but i was i was living i was in vegas and uh i hadn't talked to my parents in probably a while um I would call them for money when I needed money, obviously. I would create some crazy story to get money. Um, but my mom said that there was a, a treatment center on an island in the Gulf of Mexico that would take me if I wanted to go. So it took me weeks to get down there because I kept, you know, hitching rides, greyhounds, whatever, you know. And uh, I finally got down there. I was at this treatment center for two weeks. And I wasn't going to like the groups or anything like that. And so the owner of the treatment center or the president of the treatment center, not the owner, um, came into my room and said, you know, very kindly, Andrew, if you don't start going to groups, you know, we're, we're going to have to talk about this. And I threatened to slay his family and <laughs> defecate on his desk. And, uh, so they kicked me out and <laughs> they did. <laughs> Yeah, they kicked me out right there. And uh, I'm actually friends with him now today. We're, we're quite good friends. He actually offered me a job at uh, a treatment center he runs in Austin a few years ago. Nice. Um, I declined it because I met my now wife, who is absolutely beautiful and amazing. Amen. And um, I would, don't know what I would do without her. But um, so they kicked me out for two weeks. I went to San Antonio, was just doing crime there, whatever, yada, 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 yada. And... Uh, they let me back in. I called them. They let me back in. And that is when um, things got interesting. I met a guy there. His, um, his name was Derek. And uh, he saved my life. And he presented to me information that no one else had ever told me. Um, for years, I was going to meetings, 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 treatment centers, meetings, 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 being told meetings makers make it. Um, all of these, all of these things I did the 90 and 90, all these, all these, um, suggestions that you hear in the meetings. Right. And, uh, I would go to meetings every single day. Um, I lived in Hollywood. Um, you know, I would go to these meetings. I would listen to people share about their cat dying when I'm there trying not to put a bullet in my head when I go home mm -hmm. to the dumpster I'm living in currently. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand why. Nobody was telling me how to get better. Mm. And uh, people kept telling me, hey, you don't you don't drink like normal people. That's why you're here in these in these um, these rooms. Right. And uh, I got that. I was like, yeah, I don't I don't even think I drink like you people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was broken down to me. It was finally explained to me. Derek sat me down and said, um, here's here's what here's what you suffer from. He presented to me the twofold illness of alcoholism. Um, you know, he broke down 
a portion of a, um, a piece of literature that's very common in 12-step fellowships, or it should be more common, honestly. But um, mm. um, on XXVIII of that book, he said, uh, you know, he broke down, you know, it says, um, we believe and it's so suggested a few years ago that a- the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomena of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So what this is saying is that I suffer from an allergy, mm. right? And what is an allergy? An allergy is an abnormal physical reaction that only happens to a minority of people. So it's saying that once I put an alcohol into my body, an allergic reaction is triggered, yeah. similar to if someone is allergic to bees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I get stung by a bee, I'll break out in hives. If I get stung by a bee again, there's a high probability that I might break out in hives. Actually, I, I'm pretty sure I will break out in hives, but at the same time, I don't know what's going to happen. I, my throat could close up. I could go anaphylactic, right? So the solution to this allergy is to not take a drink, right? Alone, that is a manageable condition. However, there's also this other aspect down at the bottom of that same page. It says, uh, um, uh, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Yep. Um, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Yep. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Yes. Drinks which we see others take with impunity. Right? So what this is saying is that this is going to be a side effect of me not having any drinks in my system. This happens every time I say, hey, I'm going to get sober now. Right. So what it looks like is uh, uh, the example I always like to give is, uh, you know, I come home from work. I turn the TV on. Cops is on. I've seen every episode of Cops twice. (laughs) Dr. Phil is on. And, you know, I just don't really (laughs) want to watch that. Um, I've got 900 channels. There's not a thing I want to watch. I've got a Mm. wall full of books. I just don't want to read. I feel like I'm jumping out of my skin. I'm restless. So I go outside to check the mail. Somebody walking by has the audacity to say something to me like, good morning, Andrew. So all day long, I'm like, what the heck does this guy mean by good morning, Andrew? Right? Yes. I'm irritable. I look back at that, my house, I look over at my neighbor's house, his house is bigger than mine, his car is better than mine, you know, I'm discontented with what I have. Now, this is not a coincidence, this is a direct side effect of me not having any drinks in my system, mm-hmm. right? This is the, the mental aspect, this mental phenomenon, and uh, if I need to get this mental aspect, this obsession, what an obsession is, is an irrational mental attachment to something. Right. And this irrational mental attachment is telling me that if I want to experience five minutes of ease and comfort, I need to take a drink. Yeah. Now, if all I suffered from was the mental aspect, I could theoretically do that. Just like a diabetic takes insulin, I could keep a 30 brick of beer in my garage and take one every time restless, irritable discontentedness crept up. Mm -hmm. But that's not the that's not the part. The fact is that I not only suffer from the physical allergy. I suffer from the mental aspect as well. And now what this looks like is that I cannot simultaneously get under control the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. I will endlessly be triggering one off. And that is the correct use of the word trigger, by the way. Um, (laughs) I will be triggering one off if I'm trying to get the other one under control. And uh, that information was broken down to me and I finally understood mm. why I drank the way I did. Amen. You know, and the next the next part of that was to smash this delusion that I would ever be able to regain control on my own. Mm. Um, you can find that information on on page thirty of the book I I was just mentioning, yeah. um, and uh, smash this delusion that I'll ever be able to regain control on my own, and that that is because. I suffer from an allergy and an obsession beyond my mental control. I have lost the ability to choose how much I'll drink and when I'll drink. Just like somebody who is allergic to peanuts cannot say how bad the allergic reaction will be 
when they ingest peanuts. Mm -hmm. It could be nothing, or it could be, I am um, an example in uh, Las Vegas, uh, naked, in jail, strapped to a black chair with guards all around me and a mask over my face because I kept trying to bite people mm. in a heinous meth rage. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's what it is. And, uh, that is the alcoholic illness. Um, that was broken down to me. I didn't want to be side note. I didn't want to be sober. Um, I certainly didn't think I could be sober, but I got sober because I did the work mm. that was involved in me getting sober. Um, as I, as I mentioned, I was a, I was a practicing Levain Satanist, um, which is different than other sects, I guess you would call of Satanism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Levain Satanist, I believe that I personally was the highest manifestation of life and consciousness and that I was God. Mm. Um, so this mindset actually takes the form of many people without them realizing that, mm -hmm that is like the principal tenant of Levain Satanism. Yeah. Um, so the part after the, the allergy and the obsession, and the smashing of the delusion, um, this, this concept of beginning to believe in a power greater than yourself. I thought that was, um, as asinine as asking me to believe that Mickey mouse existed. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, if, if I, I thought I I knew everything about spirituality, right? I used to take so much acid. I would eat <laughs> half a sheet of acid at a time, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I knew everything there was to know about spirituality. Hmm. But it turned out I knew very little. Um, I actually, I knew nothing about it, you know? And it was broken down to me that um, believing in something and having a relationship with something are two very different things. Um, you know, I can call Amanda up. I say, hey, I'm having a party at my house, right? Come on over. Um, she said, cool. What kind of party? And I'm like, well, I got a bunch of red lights, black lights, strobe lights, green lights, pink lights. <laughs> she says, awesome. I'll be right there. You know, 20 minutes later, she comes over. She knocks on the door. She opens the door expecting to see this giant extravaganza. But I'm on the ground reading a book next to a candle. She says, what's up, dude? Don't you believe in electricity? Well, of course I believe in electricity. I'm reading a book about electricity right now. I go to electrician school every once a weekend, you know, but until I actually go over to the wall and, you know, go to the light switch mm -hmm. and have a relationship with electricity, it's doing me absolutely no good. It's, it's, hmm. um, it's, it's, it's pointless and it's academic in nature to just believe in something without having a relationship with something. Um, in my opinion, but, um, that's what it was. And, uh, little by little things started to happen. Um, and I began working with other guys. I, I did the work that's outlined in the literature of the fellowship that I'm in, mm -hmm. in about two weeks. And I started sponsoring cats at about two weeks sober. And that is the only reason I'm still alive. My first job out of treatment. Um, so I, I was in treatment for around 60 days inpatient. And then I got moved to transitional living. Yeah. And then I got moved to, then I moved, I moved to Dallas um, to go to a sober living that I stayed there for like a month. I didn't vibe with it. So yeah. I dipped out. And uh, got an apartment. I don't recommend doing that to anyone. Side note, uh, I made early sobriety infinitely more difficult on myself than mm -hmm. it needed to be. Yeah. But uh, um, I got a $120 a week room for rent in a crack house. Wow. And um, I was I was fired up about sobriety. You know, I was bringing cats through the steps uh, on the patio sidewalk outside McDonald's <laughs> at three in the morning. Nice. And uh I was, I was fired up and, uh, it's because I needed, I needed to do that to survive. You know, this is a life and death situation for me. If I yeah. go back to what I was doing, I, I will die. Yeah. You know, if I, if I let up on a spiritual program of action for a moment, 
I will die, you know, and that's, that's just not in the cards for me anymore. I can't, I can't be like other people. Um, and I, I used to not vibe with that. I didn't like that, but now it's, you know, my, my primary purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to those around me. And, uh, that's the only reason I'm here. Um, on this planet still alive is to do that and uh that that manifests itself in various ways you know uh, my first job out of rehab i i managed a bar in dallas i was the bar back manager um and uh you know everyone thought i was crazy hey dude you're just out of rehab after your 23rd time you can't manage a you know you can't work in a bar well it's yeah. actually i can because i worked a program that allowed me to go anywhere any normal human could go, you know, as long as I stay in fit spiritual condition, Amen. you know, I can go anywhere anyone else can do go and, um, you know, be fine as long as I stay in, in fit spiritual condition. Mm -hmm. And I did that and God presented, um, many opportunities to be of service in that establishment, you know, nice. um, not I, i've never was really of service to like patrons of the bar mm -hmm. but you know in that industry a lot of people suffer oh, yeah. um you know and uh i owe i owe a lot to that place actually the first time i met my wife i called her a nerd <laughs> um because one of my co-workers used to say that all the time and uh unfortunately he passed away um due to liver failure and uh but when i was working there um, you know, I, I was able to be of service to him, you know, whether or not people do with that information is not my problem, but, uh, or I should say it's not my business. Um, you know, sobriety has given me a lot, but really I would like to say that, um, in my experience, sobriety is just a byproduct of a relationship with a higher power. Yeah. It's it's nothing more than that. It's just a byproduct of of stepping outside of yourself and um, doing a few simple suggestions that are presented to you. Amen. You know, and uh, the program, the steps have given me more than I could ever dream. And I'll I'll say this with all earnesty and honesty in my heart. Um, there is nothing that I love more than injecting black tar heroin and hydrous methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. If this program was not a, it was not more than a sufficient enough substitute for that, I wouldn't be doing this. I would be doing that. Yeah. You know, people used to say all the time, like, oh, this is, this is a better high than I've ever experienced. Hmm. I didn't believe them. I was like, were you getting high, right? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, uh, and, uh, but it, it's... Andrew, let me ask you, those yeah. moments of peace that you looked for with the drink and the, mm -hmm. the, that search for the moments of peace when you needed that, how do you deal with that now? What's your mechanism for dealing with that now? Um, you know, now I, I, I'll call that five minutes of ease and comfort. Um, <laughs> now I find five minutes of ease and comfort by, you know, talking to my wife. I love her input on anything that I'm going through. Um, you know, I'll go to God. Uh, of my understanding, I will go to my family. Um, my sister is a huge part of my life now. She wasn't always. Amen. And um, I'm grateful for everything my sister does for me and has ever done for me, actually. Um, meditation is a huge part of my sobriety. Um, a strict um, nightly inventory of my day. But if stuff is really hitting the fan, um, of course, I'll call my sponsor. Um, I have a long distance sponsor. He still lives in Dallas, actually. Um, but you know, I mean, it works fine. He's a great guy. And, uh, you know, um, the guy who sponsors me now is not actually the guy who brought me through the steps, but I call the guy who brought me through the steps quite frequently. Nice. Um, he's a great guy. And, uh, but that's that's really it, man. Is is those those things are are really what keeps it together. But I'm not going to go without saying that the most pivotal, paramount, and crucial part of my sobriety and keeping my head straight 
is service. Amen. It is, it is when I'm going through some stuff, I, agree. Um, I, I need to, for my survival, work with another alcoholic. Same here. You know, yes. and that's, that's it. It is the building block of me being alive. Amen. Is working with other alcoholics. Amen. And that book that you're, uh, the literature that you're speaking of, I was 11 years sober doing the same thing that you were talking about, going to meetings, waiting for, go to meetings, don't drink and let it happen and just let, when's it going to happen for me, you know? And um, 11 years sober, suicidal, ready to take my life and uh, intervention happens and then someone suggests that literature and I was like, screw that no way and um and that is where my life forever changed there was a part that i never heard in the meetings that that book that that literature saved the first 100 men and women um and that book still continue continues to save millions of people and uh, forever changed my life and that's the only way i will work with others is by taking them through that process because i don't want someone 11 years sober wondering why this program isn't working. Like I knew AA was the last one on the left. And once that doesn't work, I'm done, you know, and, and it forever changed my life. So um, you two are pretty powerful, amazing stories, and I can't thank you enough. And uh, part of my recovery was um, I didn't know how to express myself. So music was my vice. Um, I think if my parents had to hear Black Sabbath changes <laughs> one more time, um, that they were going to rip their head out. Um, but all different music throughout my whole recovery. And um, Andrew, I know you're an amazing musician. And I did ask you to uh, play us a song this evening of your choice. Um, tell us a little bit about why you're picking this song. And uh, let's hear what you got. Um, yeah, so this piece is actually, it's by a Cuban composer. Um, but it is an homage to a Polish composer, Zimanowski. Um, I am um, very Polish. Me too. And on my father's side, a little on my mother's, but um, my father's parents were both from Poland, came over after the war. Hmm. And um, I have had a rocky past with my father. I mean, my parents once got a restraining order against me, and now hmm. I talk to them every day. Yeah. Um, but uh, this song is for him, or this piece is for him, and um, it is called the Omaggio a Zimanowski. Okay. And uh, it is, I like it, so uh, hopefully I don't mess it up. Um, you got this. But yeah.
Absolutely beautiful, brother. Thank you thank so you. very much. So thank you guys again for being here and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. Um, your stories are remarkable. Um, your light is just shining through the screen tonight. Um, and I just, I always like to end our show um, with praying for those that are addicted um, to drugs, um, especially some people right now that are really near and dear to me that are struggling. So uh, I just ask most loving God, we ask your blessing upon all who suffer from addiction, strengthen them to reach out for help, enable them to take the first steps to recovery, bless them with the persistence to persevere in the fight to be free, give courage and hope to their families, drawing them close together in the power of your love, which alone can transform our living. Amen. So God bless the two of you. Thank you so much for being here on The Empty Chair. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll see you in two weeks with two more amazing, gift, amazing guests. Have a good evening and God bless.